Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you're anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. Today, we're talking about all of the hard behind-the-scenes work that happens before a solicitation hits the street. This episode is brought to you by Skyway Acquisition. Visit skywayacq.com to learn more. So let's get started with this week's episode. We generally recommend that contractors not pursue opportunities if the first time you've seen it, if the first time you've heard of it, is when the RFP or solicitation comes out. RFPs, I mean, they're a result of something. They're not a starting point. They resulted from some effort. When an RFP comes out, there's there's been some activity, like maybe a lot of activity by both government and industry that, that resulted in that RFP. In this episode, we're going to dig a little bit into how that works and why both government and industry care about what happens before the RFP comes out. And we'll also drop some some tips on how to get better results for both sides. Before we do that, let's stop and say thanks. Thanks this week goes to Sri Vadi from United Solutions Group in uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania. I want to thank Sri for his feedback on our podcast and for joining the CO Podcast Group on LinkedIn. When listeners join our CO podcast group on LinkedIn and then share that they did, more people find our podcast and we are better able to make government contracting better one contract at a time. Thanks, Sri. We appreciate it. Back to RFPs, back to solicitation. So in this one, we're going to use the term RFP to talk about any type of solicitation, not just a request for proposal. That being said, RFPs are a lagging indicator the result of, of, of a need, of a requirement working its way through the buying process, through the government acquisition system. Because we like analogies, think of this being similar to how a company's sales are a result of activities. Sales are a result of solving a problem that people will pay for, figuring out who those people are, getting their solution, getting your solution in front of them, and then showing them how to actually buy from you. Like that's a process that results <laughs> in a sale. Yeah, it's it's and, simple. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And again, you can debate that whether or not it's the exact process or not. But my point is that that it's the result of a process, especially in something like the complex sale, like in government contracts, it's a complex sale. And we talk about that in episode 225. Yeah. Complex sale versus simple sale. What's the other? Correct. Like when, like buying a piece of gum, when you walk into the, into the grocery store, simple sale. Yeah. Buying something that re- re- includes more than one person deciding on whether or not they're going to do it. That's a complex sale. Yeah. From sales back to RFPs, they aren't just bored. They don't just fall out of the sky. They're a result of a process. Right. In, in episode 118, we, we introduced this concept of the three deciders. The, the economic decider has the money, the customer has the need, and then the contracting officer, that's the, the third decider, has the authority and the responsibility to take the economic decider's money and meet the customer's needs. So these three groups, economic decider, customer, contracting officer, those are the, the three deciders. All right. Put it in the context of an RFP and how the RFP is the result of those three deciders deciding to do something. The contracting officer, right? They don't have any money or a requirement. Therefore, there's no internal motivation to, to create an RFP. I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't walk around looking for reasons to post RFPs. <laughs> oh, come on. I can, t- I can see you getting all twitchy. I haven't bought anything in, in, in three days. I must must buy, must buy. 
<laughs> go, go, go buy a stick of gum. You're, you're fine. But I, I need a requirement and I need funds, right? Likewise, if, if the customer, if they don't have a need, then there's no need for an RFP. No requirement, no RFP, no solicitation. There's, right. there, there has to be a need to drive toward having an RFP. And then likewise, if the economic decider doesn't have any money to pay for the solution that the customer wants, there's no need to put out an RFP because we can't buy anything. <laughs> it's like you need these three deciders to be involved in building up to releasing an RFP. And we won't get into how a need gets money appropriated and authorized to be then given to the economic decider to start the process for the contracting officer. We won't get into how the, the whole congressional the whole process works. Right. But we will get into the acquisition and execution time zones. We're talking RFPs here and specifically what happens before the RFP that impacts the RFP. So in acquisition time zone speak, we're talking about the requirement zone, the market research zone, and the RFP zone, the request for proposal zone, solicitation zone, however you want to think of that. On the execution time zone side, this shows up in the recompete zone, the third zone, when the government has worked its way through a contract, awarded it, that the contract has been executed. Now, do we need this again? Are we going to buy this again? How are we going to buy this again? That's really the requirements and markets research zone of the next acquisition. So you're circling back through. And if you're not familiar with the acquisition time zones, we cover those in episode number three and the execution time zones are in episode 372. Let's get deeper into where does an RFP come from? It starts with what are we buying? And we talked about that in the GovCon Cube episode, it was episode 331. And GovCon Cube represents the elements that as a contracting officer, I need these six elements to be able to award a contract. Well, the base of the GovCon Cube is the what. Like, what are we buying? <laughs> if we don't have a what are we buying, we have no reason to build up to an RFP because all the other elements don't matter if we don't know what we're actually going to buy. Real quick, what are the elements of the GovCon Cube? Who we're buying it from, how much it's going to cost, where it's going to be, when we're going to need it. And then the roof of the GovCon Cube is how. How are we going to buy it? That's the acquisition strategy. So it starts with the what and it ends with what what method, what acquisition strategy, what plan, how how are we going to buy it? What tools, systems, is it going to be a small business set aside? Is it going to be a simplified acquisition procedure? Can I buy it just off the web using commercial processes? Is it a full-fledged, far part 15, billion dollar RFP? All those come from walking through the elements of the GovCon Cube. The point is, the RFP doesn't spring into existence out of nowhere. There's a lot of work to get there, and a lot of people were involved. If you just found this RFP on the web, if it just drops, hey, there's a new solicitation out that you could bid on, you already know that you're, you're behind. There, there are a lot of people involved before, not just government people. Someone influenced that RFP. You effectively showed up to see the roof of the GovCon cube be put on. Because <laughs> right. the RFP is the how. It's like, think about it. All the other sides of the cube have been put together, and then you show up and say, oh, look, they're putting the roof on. Now I want to bid. Right. Someone influenced that process all the way up to getting the RFP out the door. When the contracting officer was putting together that RFP, the influence may have only been passive research. They, they may have just done some research on the web, 
found a company's website that said, wow, this is exactly what I need. But that company's marketing, their website, influenced the details of that RFP because that RFP is set up so that, oh, this company could bid on it and win. That's pretty passive. Took some effort, but it wasn't a conversation. Other RFPs are directly influenced by one-on-one conversations between industry and the government customers, not just the contracting officer. Either way, deciding how much it's going to cost, who is going to be able to bid, when, we're, how quickly we can get it. All of those things are influenced by what industry can actually deliver. I mean, contracting officers aren't just guessing on this, or, or they shouldn't be. You're thinking about what's going to happen if you do that, right? And, and for you cynics out there, if they do just guess and say, oh, I want to do this as a not, not as a small business set-aside, they can be challenged on that. Like if they're literally just guessing, those are a lot of the guesses are things that can be challenged. If the contracting officer, if the contracting officer is just guessing, correct. So there, there, that's why there's a whole part of the FAR called market research. <laughs> the expectation yeah. is you're looking out, saying, "Okay, what can actually happen?" Because if you yeah. just guess, you have a lot of risk. Beyond the expectation, the requirement is that you do the market research. <laughs> correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well said. All right, government side. Why should the government care about getting industry involved before? releasing an RFP? Well, if you want better solutions, engaging with industry is one of the ways to get them. The the requirement may come from the government, but the acquisition strategy should be influenced by what industry can actually do. It's why we have these zones. And it's something that I I learned and got better at as as a contracting officer over time. But the, the more input you get from the people who are actually going to do the work, the better the work tends to be done. Yeah, I think in our day, especially the training that contracting officers receive is a whole lot about the requirements, about about the rules, what you can't do because there's rules against that, and not so much about how to engage with industry, how to interact, how to use industry to come up with better acquisition outcomes. While while it is taught and and definitely more today than it was when we were interns together, Kevin. That's something that requires some, uh, you got to get some scar tissue. You have to get out there and do it to get good at it. Getting influenced by the, by industry's capability, it can be a good thing. And it, it reveals, or okay, it can reveal the path of least resistance. If I figure out this is the path of least resistance to award based on what industry can actually do, that's a good thing. It's going to save me time. It's going to make the process uh, more effective. And again, get me contractors that can actually do it. So if you're on the industry side and you're thinking, why did this solicitation come out as a small business set aside? Because the government wants the, the best small businesses they can find. I'm looking for people that can actually do this work who are small businesses. And the best way to do that is to talk to them. And it's very likely because one or more small businesses was talking to the acquisition office and said, hey, I can do this. I'm a small business. If you set it aside, that's your path of least resistance. You don't have to do a full and open competition and deal with everyone. You can just use small businesses. If the solicitation came out on soup with solutions for enterprise-wide procurement, one, one of these giant multi-award IDIQ contracts, that may not have happened accidentally. No, it's because offers separated themselves by saying we're on this contract. We, we, we can we can perform for, for you government and we're already on this contract yeah they've been pre-vetted uh, there it, it again that's a path of least resistance but it also shows that these are capable contractors so it, it saves 
you time as a contracting officer now, you don't have to do that vetting and make sure that they can actually perform. If that solicitation, if the first time you've seen it is when it shows up and it says, oh, it's through soup, this multi-award IDIQ, it's probably because someone who already has, is, is on that, has, has shaped it. And the government said, well, that's an easy way to get to this contractor that I know can do the job. So I'll just compete it here rather than through another tool. If you aren't on soup and you're involved with this acquisition office, you would be trying to convince them to do a different type of solicitation to get it away from all those soup contractors. It's S-E-W-P, not S-O-U-P, soup. Got it. It's an, an acronymized word. If an RP comes out that says you have to have five years past performance rather than three years past performance, it may have been shaped that way. For me, as a contracting officer, I want to be able to say, okay, you've only been doing this for six months and other companies have been doing it for five years or more. For me as the buyer, I want somebody who's been doing it longer, especially if it's continuously. So if you've only done this type of work for three years and it says five years, you'd be shaping them to change the RFP. If you've done it for five years and you know there's a strong competitor that's only done it for three years, you might be shaping it for, hey, five years of experience doing this. And when I think of past performance, a lot of times it's you have to have done this type of work in the past three years or the past five years, right? So same thing happens. If you see an RFP that comes out that says you have to have performed this type of work in the past five years, it could be because someone who hasn't done it in the last three years but did this type of work four years ago shaped it that way, right? They, they didn't want to be... They didn't want to be ruled out, so they made sure the government extended that how recent is the past performance threshold to five years so that they could be sure to compete. As a contracting officer, the term shape puts people on, makes, I'm being shaped. Okay, be influenced. Use whatever word you want. But the point is you want companies that can actually do the work well. If somebody who's done it well before 3.2 years ago, it's good for you to have them to be able to bid. And if the way that they're able to bid is extending it from three to five years, there's hardly any downside to that. In fact, I would argue there's no downside to that. Yeah, it, it also works. If, if you say three years and there's only two companies that have done it in the last three years, but if you say four years, you get three companies or four companies there to you compete, go. you may want to open it up. Or the other way around. If five years gets you 300 companies and three years gets you three bids, you might want to put it at three <laughs> years because if you have three qualified, capable contractors to compete, you'll do okay. Kevin, you mentioned shaping sometimes gives uh, government people the willies. Like, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to be shaped. Uh, yeah. The, the FAR actually encourages this. Just I'll, picking out one reference, FAR Part 15 that, that governs the, the largest uh, general type of, of acquisitions, 15.201 paragraph A, says exchanges of information among all interested parties from the earliest identification of a requirement through receipt of proposals are encouraged. Paragraph B says the purpose of exchanging information is to improve the understanding of government requirements and industry capabilities, so both directions, and to enhance the government's ability to obtain quality goods and services at reasonable prices and increase efficiency in proposal preparation, evaluation, negotiation, and award. In other words, if the government is talking to industry, and industry is learning 
about the government's requirements, the whole process goes better. And the FAR tells you, please do this. Again, put away the language of shaping and think in terms of influence. The FAR wants industry and government to be influencing each other. That's what that whole FAR part is emphasizing. Industry folks, I'll, I'll talk directly to you for a moment. Your, your win rate is probably very low when you arrive during the RFP zone. Meaning if, if, if the RFP being released is your first clue that there's something to bid on, you're probably very late. It goes back to the, the roof is just now being put on the GovCon cube when you show up. <laughs> you may win some uh, if you're very unique um, or you have some unique advantage. You also may win if you're super cheap. Uh, well, if you're the least expensive, if, it, if it's just a uh, price that the government is shopping on. Yeah, the government also might not award to the lowest price if they don't know you. If they're if you're not someone they know and trust, they might award to the higher price companies that that they're more familiar with. So just being special or just being the lowest price may not be enough to win in some acquisitions. We talked about the concept like a price floor and also the definition of price realism. And the government like to your point Paul, the government says this is not this is too cheap. <laughs> it's like, there's no way they can do it for this. I don't trust them. I don't know them. And they move on. We talked about those in previous episodes. Correct. Not, yes, this, not one. this one. <laughs> I, I would remember I've talked about them here. <laughs> if you show up during the RFP zone, if your first clue that there's something to bid on is when you see that RFP, there were two entire acquisition zones, the requirement zone and the market research zone before you even got involved, right? You don't have any context about this bid just from that RFP. You may need questions answered that others have have known the answers to for weeks or months. And you probably don't even know who's involved in the bidding, right? During the market research zone, when the RFP is being created, being written, there are tons of opportunities to to gain business intelligence, to 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 learn about who your competitors are and be ready to to write your proposal specifically to beat those competitors. In, in FAR Part 15 speak, which is what we we're, were referencing a minute ago, the one of the biggest differences between those two zones that are now over and now that we're in the RFP zone is that the questions you ask are public. So to your point, Paul, a lot of the questions that were happening during the market research zone were being answered one-to-one, were being answered through just exchange of information. Now it's all formal. And so your questions, you got to ask everybody publicly. You had to raise your hand in class and ask the teacher a question. That's a very different concept than being able to have the conversations in the hallway ahead of time, which is really how this feels. And the, the disadvantage that creates is huge. We've talked a lot about shaping. Part of shaping, maybe even before shaping, is, is targeting. Yeah, and, and not targeting is a disservice to your customer you need to be able to know who you're trying to sell to, right? So one benefit of targeting is you're involved prior to the RFP. You're going to be part of the shaping process. Yeah, and you know you're bidding to customers that actually buy the kind of stuff or are interested in buying the kind of stuff that you sell. If you're not targeting, you could be just throwing proposals out left and right to people that that are never going to buy from you. And you may be out of your weight class and, and not even know it. You see the RFP come out and say, yeah, I can do that. And for all the reasons we've been talking about, your your proposal is going to miss the mark in so many ways. 
if you're out of your weight class and this is this is a heavyweight proposal and you're a middleweight contractor, meaning you don't have all the processes, procedures, certifications, proposal writing abilities to even submit a quali- quality proposal, it you're you're also never going to be able to perform on that work. But yeah, put, put, put that aside for a minute, yeah. But if you're just reading the RFP for the first time, you may not recognize that you're out of your weight class until you've already spent a lot of time and money trying to get a proposal together, right? Being involved earlier in the process helps you understand one of the most important decisions that you can make is to not bid on, on things that you can't win. And if you're not familiar with the concept of weight class, we talk about that way back in episode number 16. Yeah, so much so much business information is available in the GovCon world, e- even for free, because the government is required to publish award data for, for, for one. It's, it's open. There are websites like usaspending.gov and companies like GovTribe and the Public Spend Forum that that kind of curate that information for you, help you understand the the government's published award data. Targeting in the government market is much easier than it can be in the business-to-business or any other market for that matter. All right, Kevin, let's wrap up for today. On the government side, you want better solutions? Let industry in before you release the RFP. Man, I wish I'd have learned that sooner yeah. in my career. Shaping is not bad. Call it influence. Call it feedback. You know, call it input, something else. Shaping over the line is bad, meaning that they're shaping to a point where only they can do it, and that creates a conflict, et cetera. Uh, we, we talked about that in episode number 213. In that case, there are lines that the contractor can't cross, but they're frankly pretty easy to see, and they're fewer than, than we think. Tell industry, here's, here's one of my suggestions. Tell industry that the RFP is a result of the first two zones. Adding a sentence like, over the last six months of market research, we've developed this requirement, period and then give the requirement. Put that in the beginning of section C in your RFP. You're setting the tone of, you don't have to tell them there's two zones, but we've been doing a lot of work that led up to this RFP. If you just found it, you're probably going to be behind the curve. Let the offers see that they're late to the party. I love that you said section C of the RFP. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) That's, so that's, we have a we have a podcast episode about the uniform contract format, and that's the that's the the actual statement of work, the work that's going to be done. You could put it anywhere in the RFP, but that's a place that you could put it. <laughs> the FAR gives you a lot of latitude for for that influence, for shaping, for for everything we're talking about before the RFP is released. So, industry folks, you can take advantage of that. You have to be proactive with targeting and shaping your customers. You shouldn't be looking to just bid on everything because just because you can meet the requirement. Think about how much work your competitors have done to make sure that that requirement was tailored to them. I think that's it for today, Kevin. We did drop a lot of previous episode references in this one. (laughs) We got to start cutting ourselves off at number of episode references. Uh, to help guide people through the episodes, we started curating them and making making lists. So if you go to the Skyway site at Skyway ACQ, as in short for acquisition, so skywayacq.com slash COP, as in Contracting Officer Podcast, you'll see the playlists that we've developed to help organize these episodes for you. All right, Kevin, with that, I'll talk to you later. All right, I'll see you, Paul. Okay, that's it for this week's episode of the Contracting Officer Podcast. When you need help understanding how you can influence a solicitation in your favor before it even comes out, 
Skyway's team of former contracting officers is here for you with training and custom consulting. Visit SkywayACQ.com or give us a call at 877-884-5280. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.